Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discern This, a podcast that aims to create a better understanding of global issues. I'm your host, Jim Clancy. You know, I've covered the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for more than 40 years, and I'm here to help bring some context to what's happening today. I spent years on the ground in Beirut and Tripoli, Lebanon, Amman, Jordan, Damascus, and of course, a lot of time in Jerusalem and throughout Israel and the occupied territories. Now, get this, our guest, James Zogby, he's been even longer than that, immersed in Middle East affairs. He is the president of the Arab American Institute. He's an outspoken critic of how this current crisis in Gaza has been handled by the Biden administration. James, hello and welcome to Discern This. Thank you, Jim. When you talk about me doing it as long as I have, I feel either I'm a masochist or sometimes I describe my life as Sisyphus. You know, and I just, just keep rolling that stone uh, with no end in sight. It's going to just roll back down again. But yeah, you and I have been troopers in this for a long time. You know, but I look at today and, you know, I think you would agree there's nothing that's been worse then this tragedy, a tragedy, yes, for the Palestinians in Gaza, the innocent civilians, but a tragedy for the Israelis as well. It, it, it is. And, you know, from the very beginning, it, it, it felt to me like there would be no good end to this. And I tried to explain to people in the administration that as much as they understood that the barbaric massacres that occurred on the 7th, uh, and they were barbaric, there's no question uh, about that, they evoked in, in, in Jews all over the world um, a sense of, of trauma, of, uh, of vulnerability, uh, a, a sense of that the Holocaust and what it, it, as it fixed itself in the Jewish mind, represented to them was this sense that uh, we're always on the edge. There's always some tragedy coming. Um, and, and I understood that. I also understood that as I saw the Israeli response to that, um, that it was evoking in Palestinians a, a trauma of their history, of their self-definition, and that is the Nakba, uh, and that is the sense that they have no control over their lives. And it's not just a Palestinian feeling, it's actually an Arab-wide feeling. I call it, I call Palestine the wound in the heart that, that never healed. To try to get the administration to understand that there were two peoples, each with their own trauma, each with their own sense of vulnerability, uh, playing out in this tragic way was very difficult. They didn't want to hear the Palestinian side of it. They were like, Israel's been wounded. This is an important issue. We've got to let this play out and destroy Hamas. And I said, you're going to make it worse, not better. Um, and it is worse now, not better. And frankly, I see no good end in sight. You know, one thing, just to, to the headlines in the paper today is administration worried about end game. Uh, and I, I was asked about that a couple of times. And I was like, you ask yourself end game questions before you start the game. You don't ask your end game questions when you're one month in the hole um, and no way to dig yourself out of the hole. And, um, and so while I understood the Israeli vulnerability and the Israeli sense of victimization, and I understand the Palestinian victimization and the sense of vulnerability, America has to be the party that acts like the adult in the room and says, let's not let this go too far. We've got to figure out a way to end it. And they refuse to do it. They refuse to do it. They became the coat holder and the well, cheerleader for Israel. They have sent that message. You know, even Obama went out and said, listen, don't make the same mistakes that we made. Yeah. And they were pretty honest about that, uh, just laying it all out there. The problem is I, Netanyahu 
has got a sense of impunity. He does, and it's well-schooled. I mean, we certainly helped him with that. I mean, he, he learned early on that he'd do something. I remember when going with Clinton in 98 to, uh, to Bethlehem, and the, the, the hill, Jebel Abuchneim, that's between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, uh, you could see the road beginning to wind up the hill to begin laying groundwork for what the Israelis call Har Homa. Uh, Clinton had said, no, 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 you must not build it, build it, it cannot be built. And Netanyahu just went ahead and built it. And Clinton looked at that and he said, what, they're building there. And I said, yeah, you told them no, but they're doing it. And Netanyahu always had the sense that he could do whatever he wanted. He's a spoiled child. You know, we say, no, don't do it. And there are no consequences. And so he continues to do it. Unless there are consequences, bad behavior builds on itself. And that is, I think, the difficulty. On the other side, on the Palestinian side, you have bad behavior um, being a form of acting out among the, that's what the spoiled child does. He says, he says to himself, it doesn't matter even if I do something good, I'm going to get punished. So why not act out? So you've got the abused child on the one side and the spoiled child on the other side. And, and you have what you have, one party acting out and the other party acting with impunity and, uh, and the U.S. not acting like the grown-up in the room to help control the situation. It's very tough to provide the kind of leadership, you know, that would be necessary here. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, when we look back at Hamas, the reasoning there, I mean, Iran playing the Palestinian card. Uh, I mean, go back, take you back 40 years, Lebanon, Tripoli, Arafat, trades, six Israeli soldiers, and he gets back four or 5,000 of his fighters out of the camps down in Ansar uh, in the south of Lebanon. And I mean, it set a stage for, and Arafat was on the ropes. I mean, the Lebanese at that point were joking as they held up the, the V sign. Uh, the Lebanese would joke and say, that's for kicked out of Lebanon twice. Arafat's on the ropes. Suddenly he turns it all around with his prisoner exchange. Maybe they're thinking about that. I, 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 I can't, for the life of me, figure out what Hamas was thinking, other than the fact right. that it doesn't make sense. What they should have thought was that after we do this, all hell's going to break loose and our people are going to get killed because we're not dealing with a rational actor. We're dealing with Benjamin. But do they care, really? Uh, I mean, if, if there's peace, Hamas is done. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with that because I've been quoting recently Jim Baker, um, uh, who, incidentally, I mean, and Democrats hate me when I say this, the last great American Secretary of State. Um, I remember in 82, uh, I'm sorry, in, in 90, he uh, appeared before Congress and somebody, a member of Congress who has since then become a very dear friend of mine, uh, said to him, you know, um, the uh, the Palestinians are cheering for Saddam Hussein. Don't you think that that means we should just give up on them? And Baker said, to the contrary. He said, no. He said, they, they cheer Saddam Hussein because he pays attention to them and he offers them hope, but it's false hope. Um, and because no one else is paying attention, they see him as, as the hero. The solution is not to punish them for that. The solution is to offer them hope, real hope, to change their lives and then pull the rug out from under Saddam and the future Saddams. That's still the lesson. I mean, you want to get rid of Hamas? Offer Palestinians real hope. Offer them a vision of the future that is real, 
not just a promise that you won't deliver on, but give them real tangible benefits of freedom and independence. Like like Biden said early on during the campaign, we'll offer them equal measures of opportunity and freedom and liberty, whatever. Those things have become ashes in the mouth. They were promises made three and a half years ago, never delivered on. And the solution to Hamas is to actually deliver on those promises. Because then people will say, I don't need your anger. I don't need your suicide death pact. Uh, What I need is the jobs, the opportunity, the freedom, the liberty, the independence, and maybe the statehood that is promised uh, by the West. We've not done it. And so we've left the field open for Hamas to exploit the fear. Look, I worked with Gore in the 90s on a project to improve the economy of the West Bank and Gaza. It failed because Israel would not allow imports and exports and business to be conducted normally. 30 years later, where are we? 70% unemployment among youth in Gaza. And it's been that way now for decades, which means a 24-year-old kid in Gaza has known nothing but five wars that have been destructive of the infrastructure and of people in the country. No job, no prospect of a job, no chance of living a normal life and having a family and, and, and seeing a future for yourself and your kids. They become ripe for being exploited by a group like Hamas that says, you know, you have no life, we can give you vengeance. And that becomes the option is suicide, vengeance, as an, instead of having a family in a normal life. Palestinians are like everybody else. They want a real life. They want kids. They want to bring home, you know, their grandkids and and, and play with them. But they don't have the chance to do that. And, uh, you know, and I, when, when people and they're say, never going to get that chance. I, I, well, his career is all but over. Benjamin Netanyahu has stood firm. His, it's not in his DNA. Uh, he has said it openly that he will never allow a Palestinian state. And he would like... Uh, for the Palestinians just to move on, make well, life so actually, miserable they leave. In the last week or so, he's said three times, he compared him to Amalek in the Old Testament, which was actually genocide. Um, and his generals are saying they're all animals. And so we, I mean, that you're right. There's a fundamental racism there that sees Palestinian life as expendable um, as Israel becomes the promised land and you know, uh, and these people become the strangers who have to be expelled. That was the language that they've lived with. Um, and, and, and that form of political Zionism that he grew up in, um, there are other forms of Zionism, but the one that he grew up in from his father uh, taught him that the only humans in that area are the, are the Jewish people, the Palestinians are, are an obstacle. Uh, and that is, it's a tragic situation. We have a situation where... There's dehumanization of the Palestinians, but in the United States, for some reason, it backfired on college campuses. Some went to the other extreme, refusing to condemn Hamas or lay the blame directly at its feet for what happened on October the 7th. What drove that? You know, I, look, I, I think we're, we're living generally in a culture that is driven to the extremes. Um, I mean, can we ask kids on campuses to behave better than people in Congress? Uh, you know, look at the look at the the, the election of Speaker uh, and how badly that went, and the, the language used by members of Congress with each other. And when Rashida Slade just makes a statement that is bare, fairly anodyne, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That does not mean extermination of the Jewish people. It doesn't mean genocide. And yet, 
she just got censured by the Congress and accused of making genocidal comments. If you have a situation like that in Congress, where people will run to the extremes and and try to portray the other side as in a dehumanized way, then that's what you're going to end up with on college campuses. These kids are modeling what they're seeing adults doing. They're modeling Donald Trump. They're modeling the uh, you know, extremes on the left and on the right that shout at each other with dehumanized language and not have real discourse. The one place that was a bright spot for me was, was Dartmouth. Um, I saw an article where in the midst of all of this denouncing and condemning and uh, Palestinian student groups being banned on campuses and uh, Florida wanting to uh, uh, see them accused of providing material support for terrorism. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Um, Dartmouth convened the faculty from the Middle East Studies and the Jewish Studies program and held forums for the students to engage in, in, in... That didn't get much attention in the media, frankly. Instead, it seems the media is amplifying the very worst in all of us. Yeah, of course. Because the... Which is weird, actually, in a way, because they keep doing stupid stuff thinking it's going to improve rating, and yet their ratings keep dropping. Somebody ought to say, hey, there's something not working here. I mean, I prefer to watch BBC right now than any of the American networks, because at least there's a modicum of news as opposed to breaking news that turns out to be something you heard at nine o'clock in the morning and is still breaking news at 10 o'clock at night. And it is something almost incidental to what is really happening in the world. It's more opinion than news. And it's, it's shout TV. Um, everything's become Fox these days. Jim, all these decades that you've spent working, immersing yourself in Middle East affairs, do you see a change in people's perception of what the plight of the Palestinians really is versus the security needs of the Israelis. For all the books that have been written, are people really gaining understanding? Well, number one, there is in public opinion polling, we're finding um, more support for, for Palestinians as people uh, than we've ever seen before. In fact, among Democrats, there's a more favorable attitude toward Palestinians than there is toward Israelis. And um, and most people want to see a peaceful settlement um, based on two states, even though I'm not sure that that even can happen at this point uh, at all. But there's a recognition that there's a conflict between two groups of people, as opposed to 20 years ago when it was Israeli people versus this abstract problem that somehow had to be solved so that the Israeli people could, could live in freedom. I, I think we've made improvement that way. The policy debate hasn't changed. I mean, Washington hasn't changed and the media hasn't changed, but public opinion has. And I think the reason why is because people are getting information in, in different ways. They're not relying on the networks to give them coverage. They're not listening to the politicians uh, talk about it. They're finding out on their own. And there is a different generation. This My brother calls them the first global, um, who... Unlike our generation, which had to become acquainted to the world, you know, through hard work, right? And we had to travel. We had to do that. These kids almost instinctively see the world bigger than the one we grew up with. Um, they they know about Darfur. They know about the Rohingya. They know about the Uyghurs. Um, they're following Central Africa. They're, they're kids aware of things, and they're aware of Palestinians, Um and they gravitate toward that in a way that uh, that makes them 
unique among the generation cohorts that exist in the country. They're not the, 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 the older generation or the middle generation. This group of kids see the world differently, which is why you get not just young people generally, but young people of color and young Jewish people um, becoming in the forefront of demanding recognition of Palestinian humanity and, and speaking eloquently about the needs of both Israeli and Palestinian people uh, in a way that other generations didn't, couldn't, wouldn't, I don't know. But th there is, I think, some real change going on. And when I first saw what Hamas did, I said, oh, damn, that's going to blow it. Uh, you know, people were developing sympathy. And it's going to go the other way. But that's not what happened. What happened was Netanyahu actually blew whatever public sympathy he had uh, that the Israeli people had had, given the, the enormous tragedy that they had encountered on the 7th. And in, in fact, we now have the largest demonstrations for Palestinian rights and for peace that we've ever seen in this country before. Um, and I think that it's not over. I mean, I think that this change is going to continue over a long period of time. Uh, and it's going to make fundamental change in how we approach not just Israel-Palestine, but how we approach the world. Um, it's a different, I, I think we're entering a, a global consciousness. And, and CNN didn't bring it to us. No, they didn't. The media has their role to play, but the politicians have their role to play as well. And they're as badly behaved as ever. Young people seem to be speaking up. I don't think there's ever been a generation that felt the overpowering smothering, if you will, effect of the Israeli lobby and APAC, pushing laws, making it illegal for you to voice your opinion, even for criticizing Israel for things that we know are illegal. The pushback is, is, is significant. It's not, happening. it's not happening without pushback. And uh, I'm seeing clearly with, uh, with, with the black community, with the Asian community, the, the Latino community, with young people, uh, pushing back these efforts to, um, to basically criminalize or penalize people for free speech uh, and for trying to understand a conflict that, uh, that needs to be understood. I, I don't think this is going to go uh, well for those who are trying to silence debate on this issue. If anything, this crisis has provoked a debate that's not going to go away easily. And uh, Congress can do stupid stuff like censuring uh, Rashida. Um, they can you know, pass laws on, as they have been trying to criminalize um, uh criticism of Israel by suggesting that it becomes anti-Semitic, it is not being accepted by, um, by, by, by most people, especially most young people. And uh, there's going to be blowback for this. And I'm, I'm getting a feel for it uh, almost, every, almost every day. I get another example of people standing up and saying, not in my name. Uh, you're not going to do this. And I... I do have a feeling that we're, we're going to come out of this okay. The question is how many people have to die before we do? Uh, how much tragedy before it happens? That is the question because a clear end game has not emerged. And it's not clear what Prime Minister Netanyahu would accept. The past exchanges of rocket fire from Gaza being answered by a limited number of airstrikes. That isn't happening this time around. There, there, yeah, I, and I again, that's the role that the United States needed to play was, okay, Israel, you got your, uh, you got your first shots in. 
you felt the need to do something striking blindly at civilian populations. But this has got to stop it. And number one, we're not going to send warships off the coast. We're not going to send you 14 billion more dollars of weapons. Um, uh, and we're not going to give speeches equating your fight with our fight for freedom in the world. Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't handle this well at all. And I and I have no uh, I have no sympathy for the way this administration handled it. I, I think that they've they've enabled these massacres to occur in the West Bank and uh, in Gaza, also in the West Bank, which is right now um, people are frightened because they are being expelled from their, their homes and their, their villages. Um, uh, the minister in charge. Well, the Netanyahu it. government really brings together some of the most hardline extremists that Israel yes. has ever seen. And they're yes. willing to use violence, yes. driving out Palestinians, living on the West Bank. They feel empowered right now. And they, 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 want, they put in a purchase order. They put in a purchase order for 34,000 assault rifles in the U.S., um, which they want to distribute to settlers. And, uh, uh, and what Smotrick has just announced is that he wants to put in place a corridor uh, around the settlements that are no-go areas, um, even in areas where Palestinians have their olive trees uh, or their farmlands or their grazing lands um, and roads so that uh, basically the Palestinians will be encapsulated uh, into closed areas that they won't be able to move out of um, to protect the settlements that shouldn't be there in the first place because they're illegal. Um, and they'll be enforced by armed settler groups uh, now heavily armed by with U.S. assault rifles. And, um, and that is another genocide uh, on the way to occurring. And I, I think that at some point, policy has to catch up with behavior and say to the Israelis, it cannot happen. And I know that it, whatever president did it, whatever member of Congress did it, would pay a price because the Israel lobby would, in fact, take measures. Um, but leadership has to speak out even when it's unpopular to do so. And we have to insist that leadership speak out because uh, this is now being done not just on our watch, but we are witnessing um, genocidal behavior that we're paying for and that we're blocking the world from sanctioning. And, you know, we're the ones who blocked the UN vote on, on, uh, on Brazil's resolution, which was fairly tame, but was critical and called for an end to all violence. And we said, no, we don't want an end to all violence. I mean, we're, this is now our war and, um, we're paying for it. We're enabling it. We're supporting it. Um, and the consequences of it will be on us. James, thanks for being with me here on the Discern This podcast. It's great to hear your perspective again. You know what else? Thanks a lot for never giving up. I'm sorry this brought us back together. I mean, I wish we'd gotten together under better times to celebrate uh, something of, of, uh, uh, of uh, happier times, happier news. But um, it is what it is. It's the it's the world. It's the the world I've I've chosen in which to work. Um, but uh, um, I, I grieve. I grieve for the the the, the deaths on the Israeli side and the 
and inside. And I also grieve, and I think we haven't paid enough attention to one final thought. A million people have been forced to leave the north of Gaza to the south. And that's just been reported in the press as uh, a million people told to leave because the Israelis told them to leave. And 45% now of, of the of Gaza City has reduced to rubble. And what people have to think about is this is a million people who had families, who come from families, who grew up in neighborhoods, whose homes and little apartments had pictures of their loved ones, had memories of gifts that they'd gotten, that, that this cushion that came from Aunt This or the 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 wall hanging that came from, you know, from Uncle That. And they had to leave all that behind that was then bombed into rubble. And they're now sitting in the South where they're being bombed in the South uh, without their memories, without their neighborhood, without kids, you know, they knew their neighborhood and how to get from here to there, to the store, to the school. I mean, this is an uprooting of an entire generation of a million people. Um, And does Israel actually think that that's going to come out okay? That they're going to end up saying, oh, we love you and, 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 uh, and we want peace? No, this is worse. This is a generation of people growing up now having been traumatized anew by a second Nakba, even larger in number than the first one. Um, and they're going to have this memory with them a long time. And unless we recognize that and address it, um, I, I fear what the trauma for this generation of Palestinians will, 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 will mean in the, in the long term. Um, these families that lost 4,000 babies, I mean, this people on respirators that had to be taken off respiration, people on dialysis who had to be taken off dialysis, babies who were in NICU hospitals in the in units in the in the north of Gaza being taken off NICU and dying because they don't get this. This is a huge traumatic moment for an entire nation. And we're just looking at it as numbers, body counts and days and bombs and instead of looking at the real life situation of, of people um, and I, I, I just I find it absolutely tragic and I thank you for giving a chance to to talk about it thanks the networks don't do it but you do thank you if you like this conversation be sure to follow us here on YouTube and give us a like if you're watching or listening to discern this on Spotify or Apple podcasts well you know what to do until the next time thanks for spending a part of your day with us. I'm Jim Clancy.